Hi everybody, Carla here. Thanks so much for joining me. I have for you the, the final two chapters of part two of Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. So I have for you part two, chapters six and seven, and that will wrap up part two of this wonderful novel here at Carla Reads the Classics. Thanks so much for joining me. Please stay tuned. Part two, chapter six. But as soon as she left, Raskolnikov stood up, fastened the hook on the door, untied the bundle of clothes Razumikin had delivered earlier, which he had tied up again, and began to get dressed. It was strange. He suddenly seemed completely calm. There was none of his half-crazed delirium as before, none of the overwhelming fear he'd experienced previously. For the first time, he felt a sudden, strange serenity. His movements were precise and measured, and his certain intentions clear. Today, definitely today, he muttered to himself. Yet he understood that he was still weak, but the strongest spiritual tension that had resulted in the serenity and unwavering resolution was also affording him strength and self-assurance. He hoped, however, that he wouldn't kill over on the street. After having changed completely into his new clothes, he looked at the money left on the table, thought for a bit, and then put it into his pocket. He had 25 rubles in cash. He also picked up all the five kopeck coins, the change from the 10 rubles spent on clothes by Razumikin. Then he suddenly unlocked the door, walked out of the room, descended the staircase, and peeked into the door of the kitchen. Natasia was standing with her back to him, stooping to fan the fire in the landlady's samovar. She didn't hear a thing. And who'd suppose that he'd go out? A minute later, he was already on the street. It was about eight o'clock and the sun was sinking in the sky. Although it was as stuffy as before, he greedily inhaled the stinking, dusty air contaminated by the city. His head started to spin slightly. Some sort of wild energy suddenly shone in his inflamed eyes and in his gaunt, pale yellow face. He didn't know and didn't even think about what direction he was taking. He knew only one thing, that he had to put an end to all this today, once and for all, immediately. Then otherwise he wouldn't go home because he didn't want to live this way. But how to end it? In what way? He didn't have the slightest idea, and he didn't want to think about it. He drove those thoughts away, thinking tormented him. He merely felt and knew that everything had to change one way or another, no matter how. He repeated with desperate, resolute self-assurance and decisiveness. By force of habit, he headed for the Haymarket, the usual path of his previous walks. Before he reached before he reached it, on the road, in front of a small shop, there stood a young, black-haired organ grinder playing a very sentimental song. He was accompanying a young girl, about 15, standing in front of him on the sidewalk, decked out as a fine lady, wearing a crinoline, a mantilla, gloves, and a straw hat with a fiery red feather. All of her clothes were old and worn out. She was singing a romance in a coarse, rough, but rather strong, pleasant voice in expectation of receiving a two-kopeck piece from the shopkeeper. Raskolnikov stood alongside two or three bystanders, listened for a while, pulled out a five-kopeck piece, 
and put it in the girl's hand. She suddenly ended her song on the most sentimental high note, as if she had cut it off, and shouted abruptly to the organ grinder, That'll do! They both moved on to the next shop. Do you like street singers? Raskolnikov said, turning suddenly to a gentleman, no longer young, who was standing next to him near the organ grinder and had the look of a flaneur. The latter regarded him with curiosity and great astonishment. I do, Raskolnikov continued, with a look that seemed to show that he was not talking about street singers at all. I like it when they sing with an organ grinder on a cold, dark, damp autumn evening, absolutely on a damp evening, when all the passers-by have, have pale green, sickly faces, or even better, when wet snow is falling straight down without any wind, you know, and gas lights are shining through it. I don't know, sir. Excuse me, muttered the gentleman, frightened by both Raskolnikov's question and his strange look, and crossed to the other side of the street. Raskolnikov continued straight ahead and came to that corner on the haymarket where the trader and his wife had been buying and selling, and where they'd stood chatting that time with Lizaveta. But they weren't there now. After recognizing the spot, he stopped, looked around, and turned to a young lad in a red shirt who was standing there yawning near the entrance to the flower shop. There's a man who engages in trade here on this corner with the woman, his wife, right? All kinds of people trade here, replied the lad, taking Raskolnikov's measure condescendingly. What's his name? Just as he was christened. You must be from Zaraysk, right? What province? The lad looked at Raskolnikov again. We don't have any provinces where I come from, your excellency, but districts. It was my brother who came here while I stayed at home. So I don't know, sir. Be kind and forgive me, your excellency. Is that an eating place upstairs? It's a tavern, and it has billiard tables. You can even find you can even find prienses there. Fine folks. Raskolnikov walked across the square. There, on the corner, stood a large crowd of people, all peasants. He made his way into the crowd, glancing at their faces. For some reason, he felt like chatting with everyone, but the peasants didn't pay him any attention and were clustered in small groups, making a racket. He stood there a while, thought for a bit, turned to the right, and proceeded along the sidewalk in the direction of Vosnesensky Prospect. After crossing the square, he found himself in a lane. He frequently used to pass along this short street, which made a bend and then led from the square to Sotovaya Street. Lately, when he'd been feeling queasy, He'd even felt like returning to all these places to make himself even queasier. Now, as he turned into the street, he wasn't thinking about anything. There was a large building filled with taverns and other eating places. Women constantly came running out, dressed as if they were going to visit their neighbors, bareheaded, wearing only dresses but no coats. In two or three spots, they crowded in groups on the sidewalk, primarily near the entrances to the lower floor, where, a few steps down, one could descend into various extremely entertaining institutions. In one of them, at that moment, there was a loud noise and a commotion that filled the whole street. A guitar was being strummed, songs were being sung, and it was all very cheerful. A large group of women had collected near the door. Some were sitting on the steps, 
Others were gathered on the sidewalk, and still others were standing and chatting. Nearby, on the street, a drunken soldier with a cigarette was making his way, cursing loudly. He seemed to want to go in somewhere, but had forgotten where. One ruffian was cursing another, and a very drunken fellow was sprawled out in the street. Raskolnikov stopped near a large group of women. Bareheaded and all wearing cotton dresses and goatskin shoes, they were chatting in hoarse voices. Some of them were over 40 years old, but others were only about 17. Almost all had black eyes. For some reason, the singing and all that noise and commotion downstairs attracted him. From there he could hear, amid the laughter and squeals, underneath the thin falsetto of the lively refrain and the accompaniment of a guitar, someone dancing for all he was worth, tapping out the rhythm with his heels. He listened intently, gloomily and broodingly, leaning forward at the entrance, glancing curiously from the sidewalk into the room. Oh, you fine policeman, you? Don't you beat up me for nothing? The singer's thin voice warbled. Raskolnikov desperately wanted to hear the words that were being sung, as if that were the most important thing. Should I go in? He wondered. They're laughing, all drunk. Maybe I should get drunk, too. Are you going in, kind sir? Asked one of the women in a rather resonant voice that was not yet hoarse. She was young and not unattractive, one of the group of women. My, you're a pretty one, he replied, standing up straight and glancing at her. She smiled. Clearly, she really appreciated his compliment. You're not so bad looking yourself, she said. He's so skinny, another woman muttered in a low voice. Did you just get out of the hospital or what? You're all trying to look like generals' daughters, yet you have snub noses interrupted a peasant who had just approached. He was tipsy, wearing a heavy coat left open, with a sly grin on his mug. Hey, what merrymaking? Go on in. If you're here, I will. What sweethearts. And he tumbled down the stairs. Raskolnikov moved on. Listen, sir, one girl cried after him. What? She became embarrassed. I'd always be glad to share some time with you, kind sir, but now my conscience is bothering me. Give me, my fine gentleman, six kopecks for a drink. Raskolnikov took out whatever coins he had, three five kopeck pieces. Ah, what a generous gentleman. What's your name? Ask for Duglida. No, no, what's all that? One of the women remarked, shaking her head at Duglida. I just don't know how she can ask like that. I certainly die from shame. Raskolnikov looked with curiosity at the woman who was speaking. Her face was pockmarked. She was about 30 years old, covered with bruises, and had a swollen upper lip. She spoke and criticized calmly and seriously. Where was it? Raskolnikov wondered as he moved farther along. Where was it that I read that a person sentenced to death during his last hour says or thinks that if he were made to live somewhere high up on a cliff on such a narrow platform that he only had room for his two feet and he was surrounded by an abyss, an ocean, eternal darkness, eternal solitude and eternal storms and that if he could remain there standing on his small bit of space for his entire life, a thousand years for eternity, it would be better to live like that than to die at once. 
only to live, to live, to live, to live, no matter how, only to live. How true, how true. Oh Lord, man's a scoundrel. And the person who calls him a scoundrel for that is also a scoundrel, he added a moment later. He emerged onto another street. Bah, the Crystal Palace. Razumikin was talking about the Crystal Palace just a little while ago. But what was I, but what was it I wanted to do? Yes, read. Zosimov said that he read in the papers about. Do you have any newspapers? He asked upon entering an extremely spacious and even orderly tavern that consisted of several rooms, though they were rather deserted. Two or three customers were drinking tea, and in one distant room, a group of four was sitting, sipping champagne. It seemed to Raskolnikov that Zamatov was among them, but it was difficult to tell to tell from afar. So what? he thought. Would you like some vodka, sir? asked the waiter. I'd like some tea. And bring me the newspapers, older ones, for the last five days, and I'll give you some money for a drink. Yes, sir. Here's today's paper, sir. And would you like some vodka, sir? The older papers and tea were brought. Raskolnikov sat down and began searching through them. Isler, Isler, Aztecs, Aztecs, Isler, Bartola, Massimo, Aztecs, Isler. Damn it all. Ah, here's the news. A woman fell down the stairs. A, trade, a tradesman burned up as the result of drink. A fire in the sands. A fire on the Petersburg side. Another fire on the Petersburg side. Isler, 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 Massimo. Ah, here it is. He finally found what he was looking for and began reading. The lines jumped before his eyes. However, he read the entire news item and greedily searched through the following issues for the latest editions. His hands were trembling from feverish impatience as he turned the pages. All of a sudden, someone sat down at his table opposite him. He glanced up. It was Zamatov. The very same, looking the same, with rings and chains, his curled and palmated black hair parted in the same way, wearing a fashionable vest, a somewhat worn jacket, and dirty linen. He was cheerful. At least he was smiling cheerfully and good-naturedly. His dark face was a little flushed from the champagne. So, you're here, he began in a puzzled voice with a tone as if they'd known each other forever. Razumakin told me only yesterday that you were still delirious. How strange. I came by to see you, you know. Raskolnikov knew that he had come by. He pushed the newspapers away and turned to face Zamatov. There was a smile on his lips and some sort of new irritated impatience shone through his smile. I know you came by, he replied. I did hear that, sir. You were searching for my sock. You know, Raz... Razumikin's very fond of you. He says that you and he went to see Laviza Ivanovna, the one you were trying to help at that time, winking at Lieutenant, at Lieutenant Perok, but he didn't get it, you remember? How could he not? The matter was perfectly clear, wasn't it? What a rowdy fellow he is. Perok? No, your friend Razumikin. You live pretty well, Mr. Zamatov. You get free access to the best places. Who's been just filling you full of champagne. We're, we were just having a drink. Don't exaggerate. Your reward. You make the best use of everything. Raskolnikov started laughing. Never mind, my good fellow, never mind, he added, slapping Zamatov on the shoulder. 
I'm not being mean, but it's out of love, playing, just like that workman said when he was punching Mitka in the case of that old woman. How do you know? Perhaps I know more than you do. You're such a strange fellow. You must still be very ill. You shouldn't have gone out. So I seem strange to you? Yes. So you're reading newspapers? Yes, newspapers. There's a lot about all the fires. No, I'm not reading about the fires. At this point, he looked at Zamatov mysteriously. A, sar a sarcastic smile curled on his lips again. No, I'm not reading about fires, he continued, winking at Zamatov. Confess, my dear young man, that you really like to know what I've been reading about. I don't care at all. I merely ask. Can't I ask? Why do you keep... Listen, you're an educated man, a literary man, right? I finished the sixth class at gymnasium, replied Zamatov with a certain dignity. Sixth class, ah, quite the star pupil. With a part in your hair, rings on your fingers, you're a wealthy man. Phew, what a fine young lad you are. At this moment, Raskolnikov burst into laughter right in his face. Zamatov flinched, and although he did not exactly take offense, he was extremely surprised. Phew, you're such a strange fellow repeated Zamatov very seriously. It seems to me that you must still be delirious. Delirious? You're all wrong, my dear. So, in your opinion, I seem strange? Well, am I arousing your curiosity? Am I? You are. Well, you mean what I've been reading about, what, what I've been searching for. Just see how many issues I had them bring me. Suspicious, isn't it? Well, tell me. Are you all ears? What do you mean? I'll explain that to you later. But now, my dear fellow, I declare. No, even better, I confess. No, that's not right either. I'm making a statement and you take it down. That's what. So I'm making a statement that I've been reading, that I've taken an interest in, that I was looking for, that I was searching. Raskolnikov screwed up his eyes and waited. What I found out and that's exactly why I came here, about the murder of the old woman, the civil servant's widow, he said at last, almost in a whisper, drawing his face extremely close to Zamatov's face. Zamatov stared directly at him without stirring, not moving his face away from Raskilnikov's. Later, it seemed to Zamatov that the strangest thing about that moment was that their silence lasted a full minute, and for that minute they stared directly at each other. Well, what difference does it make what, you're, what you've been reading? He cried out suddenly, in perplexity and impatience. What do I care? What about it? It's about that very same old woman, Raskolnikov continued in the same whisper, without flinching after Zemetov's exclamation. The one you were talking about at the office, you recall, when I fainted. Well, now do you understand? What's all this? What do you mean, understand? Said Zemetov, almost alarmed. Raskolnikov's motionless and serious face was transformed in one moment, and he suddenly burst into the same nervous laughter as before, as if he were absolutely unable to restrain himself. And at that moment, he recalled with an extraordinarily clear sensation another recent moment when he had stood behind the door, axe in hand, with the bolt bouncing up and down. They were standing outside the apartment, arguing, trying to force the door open, 
and he had suddenly felt like shouting at them, arguing with them, sticking his tongue out at them, taunting them, mocking them, and laughing, laughing, laughing. You're either out of your mind or, Zamatov remarked, then paused, as if suddenly struck by a thought that passed through his mind like a bolt of lightning. Or? What's that or? Well, what? Say it. Nothing, Zemetov replied irately. It's all nonsense. They both fell silent. After an abrupt, fitful burst of laughter, Raskolnikov suddenly became thoughtful and glum. He placed his elbows on the table and rested his head on his hands. He seemed to have forgotten about Zamatov. The silence lasted rather a long time. Why don't you drink your tea? It'll be cold, Zamatov said. Huh? What? Tea? All right. Raskolnikov took a swallow from the glass and put a small piece of bread into his mouth. Looking at Zamatov, he suddenly seemed to recall everything and pulled himself together. At that moment, his face assumed its original sarcastic expression. He continued drinking his tea. These days, a large number of swindlers have turned up, said Zamatov. Just recently, I read in the Moscow News that a gang of counterfeiters had been apprehended. There was a whole society of them. They were forging banknotes. Oh, that was a long time ago. I read that a month ago, Raskolnikov replied serenely. So, you think they were really swindlers? he added with a laugh. What else could they be? What else? They were children, greenhorns, not swindlers. Fifty people gathered together for that purpose. Is that possible? Three would have been too many, and even then it would work only if they trusted each other more than they trusted themselves. If only one of them got drunk and let the cat out of the bag, the whole scheme would collapse. Greenhorns. They hire unreliable people to change banknotes and offices. Can you trust perfect strangers with a job like that? Well, let's suppose these greenhorns succeeded. Let's suppose each one got away with a million rubles. Well, then what? For the rest of their lives? Each would depend on all the others for the rest of their lives. They'd be better off hanging themselves, and they didn't even know how to exchange the counterfeit notes. One of them walked into the bank office, exchanged 5,000 rubles, and his hands were shaking. He counted out 4,000, but took the fifth without even counting, on faith, so that he could stash it in his pocket and get away as soon as possible. Well, he aroused suspicion, and the whole scheme came crashing down as a result of one fool. Is that the way to do it? His hands were shaking, interrupted Zamatov. No, that's that's possible, sir. No, I'm, I'm absolutely sure it's possible. What if you couldn't bear the strain? Of what? And you could bear it? No, I couldn't. Confront such terrible danger for a reward of 100 rubles to go where? Into a bank office with counterfeit notes where they all know the tricks of the trade. No, I, I'd, get, I'd get frazzled. Wouldn't you, too? Once again, Raskolnikov felt the urge to stick out his tongue. At times, a shiver ran up and down his spine. I wouldn't have done it like that, he began in a roundabout way. Here's how I would have changed the counterfeit bank notes. I'd have counted the first thousand very carefully, four times over, examining each note, and then moved on to the next thousand. I'd have begun counting that one, reached the middle of the pile, 
and then pulled out some 50 ruble note, held it up to the light, turned it over and held that up to the light too, checking to see if it was counterfeit. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I would say. Several days ago, a relative of mine lost 25 rubles, and I would have told him the whole story. And when I started counting the third thousand, no, wait, I think I miscounted, and the seventh hundred, the seventh hundred, and the second thousand, I'd be overcome by doubt. Then I'd put down the third thousand, return to the second, and so on for all five. As soon as I'd finished, I'd pull one banknote out of the fifth thousand and one out of the second hold them up to the light, and I would say, looking very doubtful, please exchange these, and thus I would drive the clerk to utter exasperation so that he'd be looking for a way to get rid of me. I'd finish all my business, start to leave, open the door, but no, excuse me, I'd go back again, ask about something else, and listen to his explanation. That's how I do it. Phew, what terrible things you say, Zamatov said with a laugh. But that's all just talk. In fact, if you were actually doing the deed, you'd, you'd probably falter. I tell you, in my opinion, not only you and I, but even an experienced, desperate man couldn't depend on himself. Why go so far? Here's an example. An old woman was murdered in our neighborhood. It seemed it was done by a real, a real blockhead taking all sorts of risks in broad daylight, saved only by a miracle. And still his hands were shaking. He didn't even know how to rob her. Couldn't take it. It's clear from that case that Raskolnikov seemed to take offense. Clear? Well, then go find him now, he cried, urging Zamatov on maliciously. What of it? He'll be caught. By whom? By you? Will you catch him? You'll wear yourself out. Here's what you consider most important. Is the man spending the money or not? He had no money before and then suddenly starts spending. It must be him. A child could fool you with that argument if only he wanted to. The thing is, that's exactly what they all do, replied Zamatov. They murder shrewdly, risk their lives, then go straight to a tavern and get drunk. They're caught when they start spending. They're not as clever as you are. Of course, you wouldn't go straight to a tavern, would you? Raskolnikov frowned and stared directly at him. It seems you've developed a taste for my approach and want to know how I behave in this case. Raskolnikov asked with displeasure. I would, Zamatov replied firmly and seriously, then began speaking and staring a bit too intensely. Very much? Very much. All right. This is how I'd have behaved, began Raskolnikov, once again suddenly drawing his face close to Zamatov's, staring intently at him again, and whispering once more, so that this time Zamatov even shuddered. Here's what I'd have done. I'd have taken the money and the items, and as soon as I'd left, immediately, without stopping anywhere, I'd have gone off somewhere to a remote spot where there were only fences, no one around, some garden or something like that. I'd have been to the yard beforehand and have looked for a large rock weighing some 40 or 50 pounds somewhere over in a corner near a fence that had perhaps been there since the house had been built. I'd have lifted up this rock, there'd have to be a place under it, and I'd have placed all the items and the money into that space. I'd have replaced the rock and put it back the same way as it was before. 
pressed it down with my foot, and then gone away. I wouldn't have touched it for a year or two or three. Well, just try to find that murderer. He was here, but he's vanished. You're mad, Zamatov muttered, also in a whisper. Then, for some reason, he moved away from Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov's eyes were shining. He'd grown terribly pale. His upper lip was trembling and shaking. He leaned towards Zamatov as close as he could get and began moving his lips, uttering nothing at all. He stayed like that for half a minute. He knew what he was doing, but was unable to stop himself. A terrible word, like the bolt on the old woman's door, trembled on his lips. Any moment the bolt would give way. Any moment he would let the word out. Any moment he would utter it. What if it was me who murdered the old woman and Lizaveta? he said suddenly and came to his senses. Zamatov looked at him in fright and turned pale as a ghost. His face was distorted by a smile. Is that possible? he asked barely audibly. Raskolnikov looked at him spitefully. Admit that you believe me, eh? Didn't you? Not at all. Now I believe it even less, Zamatov said hastily. You're caught at last. The star pupil's been caught. If you believe it less, that means you must have believed it before. Not in the least, cried Zamatov, obviously flustered. Was that why you frightened me, just to lead me to this? So you don't believe me. Then what were you talking about after I left the office then? And why did Lieutenant Perok interrogate me after I fainted? Hey, you, he shouted to the waiter, standing and picking up his tea. How much do I owe you? Thirty kopecks in all, sir, he replied, running over. Here's an extra twenty kopecks to buy yourself a drink. See how much money I have? He stretched his trembling hand toward Zamatov. It was full of banknotes, ten ruble notes and five, twenty-five rubles in all. Where did I get them? Where did I get my new clothes? You know that I didn't have a kopeck before. You've probably questioned my landlady already. Well, enough. Asis cause. Goodbye. All the best. He left, trembling from some wild hysterical feeling mixed together with unbearable pleasure. He was feeling gloomy, however, and horribly tired. His face was distorted, as if after some sort of seizure. His exhaustion was quickly increasing. His strength was aroused and now came on suddenly with the first stimulus, with the first irritating sensation. And that waned just as quickly as the sensation faded away. Meanwhile, Zamatov, left alone, sat in deep thought in the same spot for some time. Raskolnikov had unexpectedly overturned all his thoughts on a certain point and forced him to reach a definitive conclusion. Ilya Petrovich is a blockhead, he decided once and for all. Just as soon as Raskolnikov had opened the door to the street, suddenly, there on the stairs, he met Razumikin, who was coming into the tavern. Neither saw the other, even a step away, and they almost bumped heads. For some time, they measured each other with their glances. Razumikin was greatly astonished, but all of a sudden, rage, genuine rage, flashed menacingly in his eyes. So this is where you are, he cried at the top of his lungs. You ran away from your bed. I even looked for you under your sofa. We even went up to the attic looking for you. I almost gave Natasia a beating because of you. And where were you? Rodka, what does this mean? Tell me the whole truth. Confess, you hear? 
It means that I was bored to death with all of you and want to be alone, Raskolnikov replied calmly. Alone? When you still can't walk? When your mug's still pale as a ghost and you're gasping for breath? You fool! What were you doing in the Crystal Palace? Confess at once. Let me go, said Raskolnikov, attempting to move past. This drove Razumikin into a rage. He grabbed him firmly by the shoulder. Let you go? You dare say, let me go? Do you know what I'm going to do with you? I'll grab hold of you, tie you up in a bundle, carry you home under my arm, and lock you up. Listen, Razumikin. Raskolnikov began softly, apparently in complete calm. Don't you see that I don't want your kindness? What's this desire of yours to do good deeds for those who, who spit on them? For those who ultimately find your kindness really difficult to bear? Why did you come looking after me when I first fell ill? Perhaps I would have been glad to die. Well, haven't I shown you clearly today that you're tormenting me and that I'm fed up with you? Why this desire to torment other people? I can assure you that all this seriously interferes with my recovery because it constantly irritates me. Zosimov left the other day so that he wouldn't annoy me. Would you too leave me alone for heaven's sake? Besides, what right do you have to restrain me by force? Don't you see that now I'm speaking entirely in my right mind? How, how, tell me at last, how, how can I finally convince you not to keep pestering me and to stop you from trying to be nice to me? Say I'm ungrateful, say I'm vile, but leave me alone, all of you. For heaven's sake, leave me alone. Let me be, let me be. He began serenely taking pleasure beforehand in the venom he was about to spew, but he finished in a frenzy, gasping for breath as he had previously with Lucin. Razumikin stood there, thought for a while, and removed his hand. Go to hell, he said softly, almost thoughtfully. Wait, he roared suddenly when Raskolnikov was about to stir from where he stood. Listen to me. I declare that all of you to the last one are blabberers and braggarts. As soon as you come up against some pathetic bit of suffering, you fuss over it like a hen with her egg. Even then you steal from other writers. There's not a trace of independent life in you. You're made from waxy spermaceti whale oil and you have watery whey in your veins instead of blood. I don't trust any of you. The first thing you do in any circumstance is try not to resemble a human being. Wait, he cried with redoubled fury, having noticed that Raskolnikov was about to take his leave again. Hear me out to the end. You know that people are coming to my housewarming today. Perhaps they've gathered already. I left my uncle there to receive the guests and stopped in here just now. So if you were not such a fool, not such a vulgar fool, an absolute fool, a translation from the original, you see, Rodya, I admit you're clever, but you're still a fool. Well, if you were not such a fool, you'd be better off by coming to my place today to spend the evening there than wearing out your new boots for nothing here. Since you're out, why not? I'd borrow a nice soft armchair for you. My, my landlord has one. You'd have some tea, some company, or else you could lie down on the couch. You'd still be among us, and Zosimov will be there. Perhaps you'll change your mind and come. No? No. You're lying cried Razumkin impatiently. How do you know? You can't answer for yourself. You don't understand a thing. 
I'd quarreled with others a thousand times like this, broken it off, and then gone running back to them again. You feel ashamed, so you go back to the person. Remember, it's Pachinkov's house, the third floor. It seems you'll let anyone beat you up, Mr. Razumikin, just for the enjoyment of being nice to him. Who? Me? I'd twist his nose if he so much as dreamt of it. Pachinkov's house, number 47, the apartment of the civil servant, Babushkin. I won't come, Razumikin, Raskolnikov said, turning and walking away. I bet you will, Razumikin shouted after him. Or else you, or else I won't have anything to do with you. Hey, wait a moment. Is Zemitov in there? Yes. Did you see him? I did. And talk to him? I did. About what? Well, the hell with you. Then don't tell me. Pachinkov's house, number 47, Babushkin's apartment. Remember? Raskolnikov went as far as Sotovaya and then turned the corner. Razumikin watched thoughtfully as he went. At last, he gestured contemptuously, entered the building, but stopped in the middle of the stairs. Damn it all, he continued almost aloud. He talks sense, but it's as if, what a fool I am. Don't madmen make sense? It seems that Zosimov was afraid of something exactly like this. He tapped his forehead. Well, what if, how can I let him go away alone now? He might drown himself. Hey, I've slipped up. I can't. He ran back, chasing after Raskolnikov, but he was already gone. He spat in disgust and hastened back to the Crystal Palace to interrogate Zamatov as quickly as possible. Raskolnikov went directly to Vonesensky Bridge, stood on the middle near the railing, rested his elbows on it, and gazed off along the bank. After parting from Razumikin, he felt so weak that he'd scarcely managed to get there. He felt like sitting or lying down somewhere in the street. Leaning out over the water, he absentmindedly regarded the least pink glow of sunset, the row of houses which grew darker in the deepening twilight, one distant little window somewhere up in an attic along the left bank, shining with a flame from the last ray of sunlight that struck it for a moment. And the darkening water of the canal, he seemed to be staring at the water with particular attention. In the end, some shapes like red circles began spinning before his eyes. The houses began moving. Passers-by, the embankments, carriages, everything began turning and dancing around. Suddenly he shuddered, perhaps saved from another fainting spell by one riotous, hideous sight. He suddenly felt that somebody was standing near him, at his right side, next to him. He glanced up and saw a tall woman wearing a kerchief, with a yellow, elongated, emaciated face and sunken, reddish eyes. She stared directly at him, but obviously didn't see anything and couldn't perceive anything. Suddenly, she rested her right hand on the railing, lifted her right leg and thrust it over, then her left leg, and threw herself into the canal. The dirty water parted and swallowed its victim instantly. But in a moment, the drowning woman surfaced and was carried along gently, her skirt puffed up above the water like a pillow. She's drowning herself, drowning, shouted dozens of voices. People came running and both embankments were covered with spectators. A crowd gathered on the bridge around Raskolnikov, surrounding him and pressing him and pressing in on him from behind. Good Lord, 
that's our Afrosinyushka, a tearful woman's voice called out from nearby. Good heavens, save her! Kind sirs, pull her out! A boat, a boat, cried people from the crowd. But a boat was unnecessary. A policeman ran down the steps to the edge of the canal, threw off his overcoat and boots, and plunged into the water. It didn't take much effort. The drowning woman was carried by the current to within a few feet of the edge. He grabbed her clothing with his right hand, and with his left, he took hold of a pole that his comrade had extended toward him. The drowning woman was immediately fished out of the water. She was placed on the granite blocks of the stairs. She came to quickly, raised herself, sat up, and began sneezing and sniffling, wiping her hands on her wet dress. She didn't say a word. She drank herself silly, kind sirs, absolutely silly, howled that same woman's voice now standing right next to Afrosinyushka. A few days ago, she tried to hang herself, but they cut her down. Just now, I went into a shop and left a young girl to watch over her, and here's what happened. She's a traitor, dear sirs, one of us. We live nearby, the second house from the corner, right over there. The crowd parted while the policemen were still fussing over the young woman. Someone shouted something about the police station. Raskolnikov regarded everything with a strange sensation of indifference and unconcern. He felt disgusted. No, it's vile. Water, it's no good, he muttered to himself. Nothing will come of it, he added. There's no reason to wait. What's that about the police station? Why isn't Zamatov there? It's open till 10 o'clock. He turned his back to the railing and looked around. Well, all right, why not? He said decisively. He moved away from the bridge and headed in the direction of the police station. His heart was empty and hollow. He didn't want to think. Even his glum mood had passed. There was no trace of the former energy he'd felt when he'd left home to end it all. Complete apathy had taken its place. Well then, it's a way out, he thought, walking slowly and limply along the canal embankment. Still, I'll end it because I want to. But is it a way out? It makes no difference. There'll be just a square yard of space. Ha! But what an ending! Is it really the end? Will I tell them or not? Oh, hell, I'm very tired. It would be good to lie down or sit down somewhere soon. The most embarrassing thing is that I did it very stupidly. To hell with all that. Phew. Such stupid thoughts occurred to me. To get to the police station, he had to go straight and then turn left at the second street. It was just a few steps away. But when he reached the first street, he stopped thought for a bit, turned into the lane, and walked around through two streets, perhaps without any goal, just to extend the moment and gain some time. He walked along, looking down at the ground. Suddenly, it was as though someone whispered something in his ear. He raised his head and noticed that he was standing next to that same house near the gates. He hadn't been back here since that same evening and hadn't even passed by. An irresistible, inexplicable desire drew him. He entered, crossed under the gateway, then went into the first entrance on the right and began climbing the familiar staircase up to the fourth floor. It was very dark on the narrow steep steps. He paused on each landing, looked around with curiosity. 
On the first floor landing, the window frame had been removed from one window. It wasn't like that then, he thought. Next, he came to the apartment on the second floor where Nikolashka and Mitka had been working. It's locked. The door's been freshly painted. That means it's for rent. Here's the third floor and the fourth. Here, he was struck with bewilderment. The door to the apartment was wide open. There were people inside and voices could be heard. He hadn't expected that at all. After hesitating a little, he climbed the last stairs and entered the apartment. It was being redecorated. There were workers inside that seemed to astound him. For some reason, he'd imagined that he would find the place just as he'd left it then, perhaps even with the bodies in the same place on the floor. But now there were bare walls and no furniture. It seemed so strange. He crossed to the window and sat down on the window seat. There were only two workmen, both young lads, one older and the other much younger. They were hanging new paper on the walls, white with lilac flowers instead of the previous yellow, worn-out, faded wallpaper. For some reason, Raskolnikov didn't like that at all. He regarded the new paper with hostility, as if regretting that anything had changed. The workmen apparently had lingered and now were hastily rolling up the wallpaper, planning to leave for home. Raskolnikov's appearance attracted almost no attention. They were chatting about something or other. Raskolnikov folded his arms and began listening. So she comes to me, that one does, in the morning, she says, elder to the younger, at the crack of dawn, all dressed up. What's this about, I say. Why are you prancing and strutting in front of me, I say. Cause, she says, from now on, tit vassalage, I want you to be my lord and master. That's what she says, and she's all dressed up, just like in a journal, a real journal. What's a journal, uncle? asked the younger lad. Obviously, he was uncle's pupil. A journal, my friend, is full of pictures, colored ones, and they come to the local tailors every Saturday in the mail from abroad, and they show how to dress, both for men and the same for women. There's drawings, I mean. Men are wearing short winter coats, but as for women, my friend, such tarts, if you gave me everything you have, it still wouldn't be enough. The things you find in this Petersburg of ours, the younger lad said enthusiastically, everything you could possibly wish for. Everything, my young friend, absolutely everything, the older man affirmed instructively. Raskolnikov stood up and went into the other room, where previously the trunk, the bed, and the chest of drawers had been. The room seemed terribly small with no furniture. The wallpaper here was still the same. In the corner, he could see clearly outlined the place where the icon case had stood. He looked around and returned to his little window. The elder workman was keeping an eye on him. What do you want, sir? He asked suddenly, turning to him. Instead of a reply, Raskolnikov stood up and went to the passageway, took hold of the bell chain and yanked it. It was the same bell, the same metallic sound. He yanked it a second time and a third. He listened and remembered. The previous horribly tormenting hideous feeling to return to him all the more distinctly and vividly. He shuddered with every sound, yet it seemed more and more enjoyable to him. What do you want? Who are you? cried one workman coming out to meet him. Raskolnikov entered through the door again. I want to rent this apartment, he said. I'm looking around. 
People don't rent apartments at night. Besides, you must come to see it with a caretaker. They wash the floor. Will they paint it? Raskolnikov continued. There's no blood? What blood? The old woman and her sister were murdered here. There was a large pool. What sort of person are you? cried the workman apprehensively. Me? Yes. You want to know? Let's go to the police station. I'll tell you there. The workman looked at him in confusion. It's time for us to go, sir. We've stayed too long. Let's go, Alyonska. We have to lock up, the elder workman said. Well, let's go, replied Raskolnikov apathetically and walked out ahead, descending the stairs slowly. Hey, caretaker, he cried as he went through the gate. Several people stood at the entrance to the house, looking at passers-by on the street. Two caretakers, a peasant woman, a tradesman in a robe, and someone else. Raskolnikov walked right up to them. What do you want? One of the caretakers asked. Have you been to the police station? I was just there. What do you want to know? Is anyone still there? Yes. Is the assistant there? He was for a while. What's it to you? Raskolnikov made no reply and stood next to him, deep in thought. He came to see the apartment, said the elder workman, drawing near. Which one? We're, we're working. Why, he says, did you wash away the blood? Here, he says, there was a murder, and I want to rent the apartment. He starts ringing the doorbell, almost tore it off. Let's go, he says, to the police station, and I'll tell you everything. He latched on to us. The caretaker looked at Raskolnikov in confusion and scowled. And just who the hell are you? He cried more threateningly. I am Rodian Romanich Raskolnikov, a former student. I live at Shield's house in the lane nearby, not far from here. Apartment number 14. Ask the caretaker. He knows me. Raskolnikov uttered all this lazily and distractedly without turning around, staring intensely at the darkened street. Why'd you come to this apartment? To see it. What's there to see? Should we take him to the police station? The tradesman ventured and then fell silent. Raskolnikov glanced at him over his shoulder, regarding him attentively, and said just as quietly and lazily, Let's go. And take him, cried the tradesman, feeling encouraged. Why was he going on about that? Does he have something on his mind? Huh? Drunk or not, God knows, muttered the workman. What do you want? cried the caretaker again, beginning to grow really angry. Why are you bothering us? Are you afraid to go to the police? Raskolnikov asked with a smirk. Why should I be afraid? Why are you pestering us? What a rascal, cried the peasant woman. Why even talk to him? cried the other caretaker, an enormous peasant dressed in a heavy tunic and carrying keys on his belt. Clear out. You're a rascal, all right. Clear out. Grabbing Raskolnikov by the shoulder, he shoved him out into the street. He almost went head over heels but didn't fall. He managed to right himself, looked at all the spectators in silence, and then walked away. A strange bird, said the workman. Folks is all strange these days, said the peasant woman. Still, we should have taken him to the police, added the tradesman. There's no reason to get mixed up in it, concluded 
the large caretaker. He's a rascal, he is. He's up to something, that's clear. But if we get mixed up in it, it won't be easy to get out. We know that. Should I go or not? Raskolnikov wondered, pausing in the middle of the street and crossing at the crossing and looking around as if expecting the final word to come from someone. But there was no reply from anywhere. Everything was silent and dead, like the cobblestone he walked on, dead to him, to him alone. Suddenly, far off, about 200 steps away, at the end of the street, in the thickening darkness, he made out a crowd voices shouting. Some of the carriage stood amidst the throng. A light was shining in the middle of the street. What's that? Raskolnikov wondered. He turned to the right and headed toward the crowd. He seemed to be gasping at, he seemed to be grasping at anything and smiled coldly when he realized that fact because he had definitely decided to go to the police station and knew for sure that everything would soon end. Part Two, Chapter Seven. A gentleman's fashionable carriage stood in the middle of the street, harnessed to a pair of lively gray horses. There were no passengers, and the coachman himself, after climbing down from the box, stood next to them, holding the horses by their bridle. A large crowd had gathered, and some policemen were standing in front of them. One was holding a lit lantern, with which, by leaning over, he was casting light on something lying on the pavement near the carriage wheels. Everyone was talking, shouting, and exclaiming. The coachman seemed confused and kept repeating from time to time, What a shame! Lord, what a terrible shame! Raskolnikov got as close as he could and finally saw the object of all this commotion and curiosity. On the ground lay a man who had just been run over by the horses. He was apparently unconscious, very badly dressed, but in what had once been respectable clothes, he was covered in blood. Blood was flowing from his face and head. His face was all beaten, battered, and mangled. It was clear that he'd been badly trampled and was in a very grave condition. Good Lord, wailed the coachman. How could I have avoided it? If I'd been racing or hadn't called out to him, but I wasn't going fast, only a moderate pace. Everyone saw. I'm just repeating what everyone else says. A drunk can't even walk a straight line. That's well known. I saw him. He was crossing the street, reeling from side to side and almost falling over. I shouted to him at once, then a second time, a third, and I reined in my horses, but he stumbled right into them and fell under their hooves. Either he did it on purpose or else he was very drunk. The horses are very young, easily startled. They shield and he screamed. Then it got worse. That's how it was. That's what happened, cried a witness's voice from the crowd. He did shout, that's true. He shouted to him three times, echoed another. Exactly three times. Everyone heard, cried a third. The coachman, however, was neither very disconsolate nor frightened. It was clear that the carriage belonged to some wealthy and influential person who was somewhere awaiting its arrival. The policeman, of course, took great pains to expedite the matter. They would have to transport the injured man first to the police station and then to the hospital. No one knew his name. Meanwhile, Raskolnikov had crowded in closer and had bent over the victim. Suddenly, the lantern, brightly lit, 
the unfortunate man's face. He recognized him. I know him, I do, he shouted, pushing to the front of the crowd. He's a civil servant, a retired titular counselor, Marmeladov. He lives near here in Kozel House. Get a doctor immediately, I'll pay, here. He pulled some money out of his pocket and kept showing it to a policeman. Raskolnikov was in a state of extreme agitation. The policemen were pleased to learn the unfortunate man's identity. Raskolnikov identified himself, provided his address, and with all his might, as if it concerned his own father, tried to persuade them to carry the unconscious Marmeladov home as quickly as possible. It's right here, only three houses away, he pleaded. Kozel's house, a German, a wealthy man. He was just on his way home, probably drunk. I know him. He's a drunkard. He has a family, a wife, children, and one daughter. There's no need to take him to the hospital when there's probably a doctor in his building. I'll pay for it. I will. He'll be cared for by his own people. They'll help right away, or else he'll die before he gets to the hospital. He'd even managed to slip something into the policeman's hand. The matter, moreover, was clear and legal. In any case, help was closer. Helpers were found to lift and carry the injured man. Kozel's house was only about 30 steps away. Raskolnikov walked behind, carefully supporting Marmeladov's head and showing them the way. This way, over here. We have to climb the stairs with his head first. Turn around. That's the way. I'll pay. I'll be grateful, he muttered. Katerina Ivanovna, as always when she had when she had a free moment, had just begun pacing up and down in their small room from the window to the stove and back again, her arms tightly folded across her chest, her chest, talking to herself and coughing. Lately she'd begun chatting more often and at greater length with her elder little girl, the ten year old Palyenka, who, even though she didn't understand all that much, knew very well that her mother needed her, and therefore followed her with her large, clever eyes, pretending with all her might that she understood everything. This time, Polyanka was undressing her younger brother, who had been sick all day. She was getting him ready for bed. While his shirt was being changed, because it was going to be washed that night, the little boy sat up on a chair silently, straight and motionless, with a serious look on his face. His little feet were stretched out in front of him, squeezed tightly, heels together, and toes turned outward. He was listening to what his mother was saying to his sister, his lips pouting, his eyes bulging, sitting still, just the way all clever little boys should sit when they are being undressed and prepared for bed. His other sister, who was even younger and wearing only rags, stood next to the screen, waiting her turn. The door to the landing was open so that some of the waves of tobacco smoke coming from the other rooms could disperse. It was making the poor consumptive woman cough long and hard. Katerina Ivanovna seemed to have grown even thinner during the last week. The red blotches on her cheeks burned even brighter than before. You won't believe. You can't imagine, Polyanka, she said, pacing the room. How cheerfully and splendidly we lived at home with your papa. How that drunkard destroyed me. And how he'll destroy all of you, too. Your papa was a state counselor and almost became a governor. There was only one step left. 
So everyone came to him and said, We already think of you, Ivan Mikhailovich, as our governor. When I... <coughs> when I... <coughs> oh, damn it! She cried, spitting up phlegm and grabbing her chest. When I... Uh, when at the last ball, at the home of the Marshal of the Nobility, Princess Bezimelnaya saw me, Polya, the one who later gave me her blessing when I married your papa. She asked at once, isn't that the sweet girl who did the shawl dance at her graduation? The tear should be mended. Take a needle right now and sew it up as I taught you, or else tomorrow... Tomorrow, <coughs> it will tear even more, she cried in a violent outburst. At that time, Prince Shelgolsky, a gentleman of the bedchamber, had just arrived from Petersburg. He danced the mazurka with me and wanted to propose marriage the very next day, but I thanked him in the most flattering terms and said that my heart belonged to another man for a long time. That other man was your father, Polya. Papa was terribly angry. Is the water ready? Well, give me the shirt. Where are the stockings? Lita, she said, addressing her younger daughter, you'll go to sleep tonight without your shirt. Somehow, and put your stockings next to it. They have to be washed together. Why hasn't that good-for-nothing come home, that drunkard? He's worn that shirt He's worn that shirt of his for too long, like some old rag, and torn it all to pieces. I want to wash it at the same time so as not to suffer for two nights in a row. Lord! <coughs> Again, what's that? she cried, glancing at the crowd in the entry and at the people carrying something, pushing into her room. What's this? What are they carrying? Good Lord! Where do we put him? asked the policeman, looking around after they'd lugged the bloody and unconscious Marmeladov into the room. On the sofa. Put him right on the sofa with his head over here, Raskolnikov said. He was run over on the street, drunk, cried someone from the entryway. Katerina Ivanovna stood there, pale, breathing with difficulty. The children were frightened. Little Ladoshka cried out, rushed to Polenka, hugged her, and started trembling all over. After seeing Marmeladov laid out, Raskolnikov rushed over to Katerina Ivanovna. For heaven's sake, calm down. Don't be afraid, he said very quickly. He was crossing the street, and a carriage ran him over. Don't be upset. He'll come, too. I had him brought here. I've been here before. Do you remember? He'll come, too. I'll pay. He got what he wanted, Katerina Ivanovna cried in desperation and threw herself on her husband. Raskolnikov quickly noticed that this was not the sort of woman who would faint immediately. In a flash, a pillow turned up under the unfortunate man's head, something no one else had thought of. Katerina Ivanovna began to undress him, examine him, fuss over him. She didn't become flustered. She forgot all about herself. 
bit her trembling lips, and suppressed the cries ready to escape her chest. Meanwhile, Raskolnikov persuaded someone to fetch a doctor. It turned out that a doctor lived two houses away. I've sent for a doctor, he said to Katerina Ivanovna. Don't be distressed. I'll pay. Do you have any water? And give me a napkin, a towel, something, quickly. It's still not clear where he's been hurt. He's wounded, but he's not been killed. Rest assured. We'll see what the doctor says. Katerina Ivanovna rushed to the window. There, on a broken chair in the corner, stood a large clay wash basin with water, ready for washing the children's and her husband's clothes that night. Katerina Ivanovna herself, with her own hands, performed this nighttime chore at least twice a week, and sometimes more frequently because things had reached the point that they had almost no clean clothes to change into. Each member of the family had only one item, and Katerina Ivanovna could not stand any dirt and thought it better to torment herself at night and work beyond her strength when everyone else was asleep so that the wet clothes would have time to dry on a line before morning. She preferred to provide clean clothes for everyone rather than to see dirt in her house. She was about to grab the wash basin and hand it over to Raskolnikov, as he had requested, but she almost stumbled with the heavy load. He'd already managed to find a towel, soak it in water, and had begun wiping the blood from Marmeladov's face. Katerina Ivanovna stood there, inhaling painfully, holding her arms across her chest. She herself needed assistance. Raskolnikov began to think that perhaps he had done the wrong thing, having persuaded them to bring the wounded man here. The policeman also stood there, confused. Polya, shouted Katerina Ivanovna. Go fetch Sonia quickly. If she's not home all the same, say that her father's been run over by horses and that as soon as she gets home, she should come at once. Hurry, Polya. Here, wrap yourself with this shawl. Run fast as you can, shouted the little boy from the chair. After saying this, he sank once more into his previous silent posture on the chair, his eyes bulging, his heels together, toes turned outward. Meanwhile, the room became so full that there was no space left at all. The policeman had gone, except for one who stayed a little longer and tried to push the spectators who had come in from the stairs back out again. Almost all the lodgers at Mrs. Lipovetschel's apartment had spilled out of the inner rooms. At first, they crowded only in the doorway, but later they came bursting into the room itself. Katerina Ivanovna flew into a rage. At least let someone die in peace, she screamed at the entire crowd. What sort of spectacle have you come to watch? And smoking cigarettes, <coughs> even wearing your hats. There's someone with a hat. Out, have some respect for a dying man. Coughs choked her, but her threat seemed to work. Apparently, they were even somewhat afraid of Katerina Ivanovna. The lodgers, one after another, crowded back to the doorway with that same strange inner feeling of satisfaction that is always present, even in one's nearest and dearest, when sudden misfortune strikes someone close. It spares no one at all. Without exception, no matter how sincere, are feelings of pity and sympathy. Behind the door, however, one could hear voices murmuring about the hospital and saying that people shouldn't be bothered here for nothing. It's not right to die. 
cried Katerina Ivanovna. She was about to yank the door open so she could let loose a storm of abuse at them. But in the doorway, she bumped into Mrs. Lipovetchel herself, who had just heard about the accident and had come running in to restore order. She was an extremely quarrelsome and disorderly German woman. Ah, mein Gott, she cried, throwing up her hands. Your drunken husband, a horse trampled. To hospital, take him. I'm here, landlady. Amalia Yudvigovna, I beg you to think about what you're saying. Katerina Ivanovna began haughtily. She always employed a haughty tone of voice when she spoke with the landlady so that she would remember her place, and even now she could not deny herself that pleasure. Amalia Yudvigovna, I told you once and for all, you do not dare say to me, Amal Yudvigovna, I am Amal Ivan. You're not Amal Ivan, but Amalia Yudvigovna, and since I don't belong to the group of your vile flatterers like Mr. Lebeziatnikov, who's now laughing behind the door. The sound of laughter was coming from behind the door, as well as shouts of, they're squabbling. Then I will always call you Amalia Yudvigovna, though I really can't understand why you don't like that name. You can see for yourself what's happened to Seyman Zagarovich. He's dying. I beg you to lock the door and not admit anyone in here. Let him die in peace. Otherwise, I can assure you, your action will be made known to the governor general himself. The prince knew me when I was young and unmarried, and he remembers Seyman Yakarovich very well, to whom he showed his favor many times. You know that Seyman, you know that Seyman Zakharovich had many friends and protectors whom he abandoned out of his own noble pride, sensing his own unfortunate weakness. But now, she indicated Raskolnikov, a generous man is assisting us. He has the means and connections. Seyman Zakharovich knew him as a child. You can be sure, Amalia Yudvigovna. All of this was uttered very quickly. The more she said, the faster it went. But a fit of coughing interrupted Katerina Ivanovna's eloquence. At that moment, the dying man came to and moaned. She rushed over to him. He opened his eyes and, still not recognizing or understanding where he was, began scrutinizing Raskolnikov, who was standing over him. He was breathing heavily, deeply, and infrequently. Blood had oozed from the corners of his mouth. Drops of sweat stood on his forehead. Not recognizing Raskolnikov, he began looking around. Katerina Ivanovna regarded him with a grim but stern look. Tears flowed from her eyes. My God, his chest completely crushed. Blood, so much blood, she said in desperation. We have to take all his outer clothes off. Turn over a little, Seyman Zakharovich, if you can, she cried to him. Marmeladov recognized her. A priest, he uttered in a hoarse voice. Katerina Ivanovna went to the window, leaned her head against the frame, and cried desperately. Damn it all! A priest, the dying man said again after a moment's silence. They've sent for one. Katerina Ivanovna shouted to him. He heard her cry and fell silent. He searched for her with a sad, timid look in his eyes. 
She turned back to him and stood at his head. He calmed down a bit, but not for long. Soon his eyes came to rest on little Ladoshka, his favorite. She was trembling in the corner as if she were having a seizure, staring at him with her intense, astonished, childlike gaze. Ah, ah, he said, indicating her with unease. He wanted to say something. What else? cried Katerina Ivanovna. She's barefoot. Barefoot, he muttered with his half-witted glance fixed on the little girl's bare feet. Be quiet, Katerina Ivanovna shouted at him irritably. You yourself know why she's barefoot. Thank God, the doctor, cried Raskolnikov, overjoyed. The doctor entered, a proper old man, a German, looking around with uncertainty. He approached the patient, took his pulse, carefully felt his head, and with Katerina Ivanovna's help, unbuttoned his blood-soaked shirt and uncovered his chest. Marmeladov's entire chest was mangled, crushed, and mutilated. Several ribs on the right side were broken. On the left side, above his heart, there was a large, ominous, yellowish-black mark, a cruel blow from the horse's hoof. The doctor frowned. The policeman told him that the unfortunate man had been caught in the wheel and dragged along the road for some thirty paces. "'It's astonishing that he's come too,' the doctor said, softly to Raskolnikov. "'What do you think?' Raskolnikov asked. He'll die soon. Is there really no hope? Not in the least. He's at his last breath. His head is very badly injured. Hmm, perhaps we could let some blood, but it'll be useless. He'll certainly die within five or ten minutes. Then let some blood. Perhaps, but I warn you, it'll be absolutely useless. Just at this time, some other steps were heard. The crowd in the entrance divided, and a priest, an old man with gray hair, appeared on the threshold, carrying the sacraments. A policeman from outside followed him in. The doctor immediately yielded his place and exchanged a meaningful glance with him. Raskolnikov asked the doctor to wait a little longer. He shrugged his shoulders and remained in the room. Everyone backed away. The confession didn't last very long. The dying man hardly understood anything. He could only utter disjointed and inarticulate sounds. Katerina Ivanovna took Ladoshka, lifted the little boy from his chair, and moving to the corner of the room near the stove, went down on her knees and placed the children on their knees in front of her. The young girl merely trembled. As for the boy, on his bare little knees, he raised his little hand slowly, crossed himself, bowed down, and touched his forehead to the floor, which apparently afforded him particular pleasure. Katerina Ivanovna bit her lips and held back her tears. She also prayed, at times adjusting the child's small shirt and managing to cover the little girl's bare shoulders with a scarf that she took from the wardrobe without having to get up from her knees or interrupt her prayers. Meanwhile, the doors of the inner rooms were beginning to be opened again by curious onlookers. More and more spectators, lodgers from the entire staircase, were crowding into the entrance. However, they dared not cross the threshold or enter the room. The entire scene was lit by only one candle stub. At that moment, from the entrance, from the entrance, Polyanka, who had gone to fetch her sister, pushed hastily through the crowd, 
she entered, still gasping for breath from racing home, took off her shawl, searched with her eyes for her mother, went up to her and said, she's coming. I found her on the street. Her mother made her kneel down and placed her near and placed her nearby. From the crowd, silently and timidly, a young woman forced her way in. Her sudden appearance in this room was strange amid the poverty, ragged clothes, death, and desperation. She was also wearing tattered clothes. Her apparel was shoddy, but she was decked out in the manner of the streets with the taste and style characteristic of her own peculiar sphere with an obvious and shameful and shameful purpose. Sonia paused at the threshold, but didn't cross it and looked like a lost soul. She seemed to be unaware of everything, having forgotten about her fourth hand, her fourth hand colorful silk dress, so inappropriate here with, with its long comical train, its enormous crinoline blocking the whole door, her light colored shoes, her little parasol unnecessary at night, but which she carried with her, and her ridiculous round straw hat with its bright fiery colored feather. From under this hat, which she was wearing with a boyish tilt to one side, there peeked a thin, pale, frightened little face with a gas with a gaping mouth and eyes fixed with a look of horror. Sonia was about eighteen years old and not very tall. She was thin, but rather pretty, with fair hair and remarkable blue eyes. She stared intently at the bed and at the priest. She was also panting from running so fast. At last, the whispering, some words spoken by someone in the crowd, probably reached her ears. She lowered her eyes, stepped across the threshold, and entered the room, though still remaining near the doorway. The confession and communion ended. Katerina Ivanovna went up to her husband's bed again. The priest stepped away, and as he did, turned to say a few words of parting and consolation to Katerina Ivanovna. What will I do with them? She interrupted him shrilly and angrily, pointing to the little ones. God is merciful. Rely on the Almighty for assistance. The priest began. Eh, merciful, but not to us. That's a sin, madam, a sin, the priest remarked, shaking his head. Isn't this a sin? cried Katerina Ivanovna, indicating, indicating the dying man. Perhaps those who were involuntary, cause of his death, will agree to compensate you, at least for the loss of income. You don't understand me, Katerina Ivanovna cried indignantly, waving her arm. Why should there be any compensation? He was drunk and wound up under the horse's hooves. What sort of income? There is no income from him, only torment. That drunkard spent it all on drink. He robbed us and went off to the tavern with the money. He wasted their lives and mine in a tavern. Thank God he is dying. We'll lose less. You should forgive in the hour of death, madam, or else it's a sin. Such feelings are a great sin. Katerina Ivanovna was fussing over the dying man, offering him something to drink, wiping the sweat and blood from his head, adjusting his pillows and chatting with the priest, addressing him from time to time at odd moments. But now she suddenly turned on him almost in a rage. Hey, father, that's all just words. Forgive him? If he hadn't been run over, he would have come home drunk tonight. 
is one shirt worn out and tattered, and gone right to sleep, dead to the world while I splashed around in water until dawn, washing his and the children's clothes, drying them out in the window, and then, as soon as it was light, I'd have to sit down and mend them. That's how I spend the night. Why even talk about forgiveness? Even so, I have forgiven him. A terrible deep cough disrupted her words. She spat into her handkerchief and thrust it at the priest to show him, clutching her chest in pain with her other hand. The handkerchief was covered in blood. The priest bowed his head and said nothing. Marmeladov was in his last agony. He didn't take his eyes off Katerina Ivanovna's face as she leaned over him once more. He kept wanting to say something. He was trying to speak, moving his tongue with effort, uttering incoherent words. But Katerina Ivanovna understood that he wanted to ask her forgiveness and immediately shouted at him imperiously, Quiet! That's unnecessary. I, I know what you want to say. The dying man fell silent, but at that moment, his wondering glance fell on the door, and he caught sight of Sonia. Up to this point, he hadn't noticed her. She stood in a corner in the shadows. Who's that? Who is that? He suddenly asked in a hoarse, gasping voice full of anxiety, looking in horror at the door where his daughter was standing as he made an effort to raise himself up. Lie down, lie down now. Katerina Ivanovna started shouting, but with unnatural strength, he managed to lean on his arm. He stared at Sonia wildly and intently for some time, as if not recognizing her. He had never seen her dressed in such clothes before. All of a sudden, he recognized her, humiliated, crushed, decked out, and embarrassed, humbly awaiting her turn to bid farewell to her dying father. His face expressed infinite suffering. Sonia, my daughter, forgive me, he cried, wanting to extend his hand to her. But losing his support, he fell from the sofa and crashed face down onto the floor. They rushed to pick him up, lay him down, but he was breathing his last. Sonia cried out weakly, rushed to him, embraced him, and almost fainted in his embrace. He died in her arms. He got what he wanted, Katerina Ivanovna cried, seeing her husband's dead body. Now what do we do? How can I afford to bury him? And how, how will I feed them tomorrow? Raskolnikov went up to Katerina Ivanovna. Katerina Ivanovna, he began. Last week, your late husband told me the story of his life and all the circumstances. Rest assured that he spoke about you with rapturous respect. Since that evening when I learned how devoted he was to you all, and especially how he respected and loved you, Katerina Ivanovna, in spite of his unfortunate weakness, since that evening he and I became friends, allow me Allow me now to help by repaying a debt to my late friend. Here, 20 rubles, I think. And if this can serve as assistance, then I, in a word, I'll come by. I'll definitely come. Perhaps I'll even come tomorrow. Goodbye. He left the room quickly, 
hurriedly pushing through the crowd on the staircase, but there in the crowd he bumped into Nicodine Fomich, who had learned about the accident and wished to deal with it personally. They hadn't seen each other since the scene at the police station, but Nicodine Fomich recognized him instantly. Oh, so it's you, he said. He's dead, replied Raskolnikov. A doctor was here, a priest too, and everything's in order. Don't disturb this unfortunate woman. Even before this, she'd been suffering from consumption. Encourage her somehow, if you can. You're a good man, I know that, he added with a smile, looking him right in the eye. But how is it you're covered in blood? asked Nikodim Fomich, noticing by the light of his lantern several fresh spots on, Re on Raskilnikov's vest. Yes, covered in blood, completely. Raskolnikov said with a particular look and then smiled, nodded his head, and went down the stairs. He left quietly, without hurrying, unaware of his fever, full of an immense new feeling of full, powerful life surging within him. This feeling could be compared to that of a man condemned to death who is suddenly and unexpectedly pardoned. When he was halfway down the stairs, the priest, who was returning home, caught up with him. After they exchanged a quiet bow, Raskolnikov silently let him pass. But when he reached the bottom, he suddenly heard hurried footsteps behind him. Someone was trying to catch up with him. It was Polyanka. She was running after him and calling to him. Wait, listen! He turned to her. She came down to the last step and stopped right in front of him, one step higher. Dim light shone in from the courtyard. Raskolnikov could make out the girl's thin but pretty little face. She smiled at him, regarding him cheerfully in a childlike manner. She had come with a commission, one that, apparently, she liked very much. Listen, what's your name? Where do you live? She asked hurriedly, her voice breaking as she gasped for breath. He placed his hands on her shoulders and looked at her with special happiness. He found it very pleasant to look at her. He didn't know why. Who sent you? My sister Sonia, the little girl replied, smiling even more cheerfully. I knew that it was your sister Sonia who sent you. Mama also sent me. When my sister Sonia began speaking, Mama also came up and said, hurry up, Polyanka. Do you love your sister Sonia? I love her more than anyone, Polyanka replied with special insistence, and her smile suddenly became more serious. And will you come to love me? Instead of an answer, he saw the girl's face draw near his, her full lips innocently ready to kiss him. All of a sudden, her arms, thin as matchsticks, embraced him very tightly, her head rested on his shoulder, and the little girl began crying softly, pressing her face more and more tightly against him. I feel sorry for Papa, she said after a minute raising her tear-stained little face and wiping her tears with her hands. Such awful things have been happening lately, she added unexpectedly with a particularly mature look that children intentionally acquire when, when they suddenly want to talk like grown-ups. Did, you, did your papa love you? He loved Lodishka best of all of us, she continued very seriously and without a smile, now speaking just like a grown-up. He loved her because she was little and also because she was ill. He was always bringing her presents. He taught us to read and taught me grammar and religion, she added with dignity. 
Mama didn't say anything, but we knew that she liked that, and Papa knew, and Mama wants to teach me French because it's already time for me to be educated. And do you know how to pray? Oh, yes, of course we do. We have for a long time. Since I'm already a big girl, I pray on my own, while Koya and Ladoshka pray aloud with Mama. First they say a Hail Mary, and then one more prayer. Oh, God, forgive and bless our sister Sonia. Then another, oh, God, forgive and bless our other Papa, because our older father died, and he's our other Papa, and we also pray for the first one. Poleshka, my name is Rodian. Pray for me sometime, too, and thy servant, Rodian. That's all you need to say. I will pray for you for the rest of my life, the little girl said passionately, and suddenly began laughing again. She rushed to him and embraced him tightly once more. Raskolnikov told her his name and address and promised to stop by tomorrow without fail. As a result, the girl went away in complete ecstasy. It was after ten o'clock when he emerged onto the street. Five minutes later, he stood on the bridge at the very same spot where the woman had thrown herself into the water not long ago. Enough, he pronounced decisively and triumphantly. Away with mirages, away with presumed fears, away with apparitions. Life exists. Didn't I just now experience real life? My life didn't end together with that old woman's. May the kingdom of heaven be hers and... Enough, old woman, it's time to rest. Now is the kingdom of reason and light and, and free will and strength. Now we'll see. Now we'll match strengths he added haughtily, as if addressing some dark force and calling upon it. And there I was agreeing to live on one square yard of space. I'm feeling very weak now, but my illness seems to have passed. I knew that it would when I left a little while ago. By the way, Poshinskov's house is only a few steps away. I should definitely go to Razumikin's, even if it's farther away. Let him win his bet. Let him make fun of me. Never mind, let him. Strength, strength is what's needed because without it, you can't do anything. You have to gain strength by means of strength. That's what they don't know, he added proudly and self-confidently. He left the bridge, scarcely able to move his legs. His pride and self-confidence grew minute by minute. And by the next moment, he was no longer the same man he'd just been a moment ago. But when, But what had occurred that was so special that it had transformed him so. He himself didn't know, as if grasping for straws, it suddenly seemed to him that he could live. There was still life ahead. And it hadn't died along with that old woman. Perhaps he had hastened to reach that conclusion, but he didn't think about that. But I asked for thy servant Rodian to be remembered. Suddenly flashed through his mind. Well, that's just in case, he added, and began laughing at his own childish trick. He was in an excellent frame of mind. He found Razumikin easily, as everyone already knew, the new lodger in Pochinkov's house. The doorman showed him the way immediately. Halfway up the stairs, he could already hear the noise and lively conversations of the large gathering. The door to the staircase was open wide, and he could hear shouts and arguments. Razumikin's room was rather large, and there were about 15 people gathered in it. Raskolnikov paused in the entryway. 
There, behind a partition, two of the landlord's servants were attending two large samovars next to bottles, plates, and dishes with pies and snacks brought up from the landlord's kitchen. Raskolnikov asked for Razumikin. He came running in ecstasy. From the first glance, it was clear that he'd had more to drink than usual. Although Razumikin could barely drink enough to get drunk, this time something was amiss. Listen, Raskolnikov hastened to say, I've come merely to say that you won the bet and that no one knows what can happen. I can't come in. I'm too weak and will topple over any minute. So greetings and farewell. Come see me tomorrow. You know what? I'll escort you home. If you yourself say that you're weak, then what about your guests? Who's that curly-haired fellow who just looked in here? That one? The devil only knows. He must be one of my uncle's friends or else he came here on his own. I'll leave the guests with my, with my uncle. He's a most treasured man. It's a pity you can't meet him. But to hell with all of them. I, I don't care about them now. I need to get some fresh air. So, my friend, you came at a good time. Another two minutes and I'd have gotten into a fight, so help me God. They're talking such nonsense. You can't imagine what sort of whopping lies a person can tell. But why can't you imagine it? Don't we all tell lies? Well, let them. Later, they won't have to lie. Sit here for a minute and I'll bring Zosimov over. Zosimov came rushing over to see Raskolnikov with some excitement. One could sense a special kind of curiosity in him, and soon his face brightened. He needs to get some sleep immediately, he decided, having examined the patient as best he could, and take one dose before he goes to bed. Will you do it? I prepared it before. One powder. Even two of them, replied Raskolnikov. The powder was swallowed right there. It's a very good idea for you to escort him, Zomisov, Zosimov said to Razumikin. We'll see what tomorrow brings, but today he seems not bad at all. A significant change from yesterday. Live and learn. Do you know that Zomisov whispered to me just now as we were leaving? Razumikin blurted out as soon as they had reached the street. I'll tell you everything because he's such a fool. Zosimov ordered me to chat with you along the way and make you talk, and then to tell him because he has this idea that you're insane or close to it. Just imagine, in the first place, you're three times smarter than he is. In the second place, if you're not mad, why should you give a damn about what sort of crazy ideas he has? And in the third place, that hunk of meat is a surgeon by specialty. And now he's meddling in mental diseases. What encouraged him in that regard was the conversation you had with Zamatov. Did Zamatov tell you all this? He did, and a good thing he did. Now I understand all there is to know, and so does Zamatov. Well, a word, Rodya. The thing is, I'm a little tipsy right now, but that doesn't matter. The point is that this idea, do you understand? This idea took hold of them. Do you understand? That is, no one ever dared utter it aloud because it's such a ridiculous, nonsensical thing, especially after they arrested that painter. All of this burst like a bubble and vanished forever. But why are they such fools? At the time, I pounced a bit on Zamatov. That is just between us, my friend. Please don't even hint that you know about it. I've noticed that he's prickly. It was at Lavisa's, But today, today it all became clear. 
The main thing is Ilya Petrovich. He exploited your fainting spell at the police station, and then he himself was ashamed. I know that, Raskolnikov listened fervently. Razumihin was letting the cat out of the bag in his drunken state. I fainted then because it was stuffy and smelled of oil paint, said Raskolnikov. No need to explain. And it wasn't only the paint. Your illness had been coming on for a whole month. Zosimov can swear to it. You can't possibly imagine how demolished that fellow is now. I'm not even worth that man's little finger, he said. Yours, that is. Sometimes, my friend, he has good feelings, but the lesson, the lesson you gave him today at the Crystal Palace was beyond perfection. At first you scared him, drove him into a fit. You almost convinced him all over again of that hideous nonsense, and then, all of a sudden, you stuck out your tongue at him. <laughs> you said, so there, perfection. Now he's crushed, destroyed. You're a master, so help me God, and serves him right. Hey, too bad I wasn't there. He's been waiting eagerly to see you. Porphyry also wants to make your acquaintance. Ah, that one too. Just why did they think I was insane? Not insane exactly. It seems, my friend, I, I've said too much. What struck him, don't you see, is that the only one thing's been of any interest to you lately, now it's clear why that's so, knowing all the circumstances and how much that irritated you then, and and you became mixed up with your illness. My my friend, I'm I'm a little drunk, but damn it all, he has this idea of his own. I tell you, he's been meddling in mental illness. To hell with him. For a minute, both men remained silent. Listen, Razumikin, began Raskolnikov. I want to tell you honestly. Just now, I was with a dying man, a civil servant who passed away. I gave away all my money. In addition, I was kissed by a creature who, if I kill someone, would also have... In a word, there I saw another creature with a fiery colored feather, but I'm... I'm getting all tangled up. I'm I'm very weak. Give me your arm. Here's the staircase. What's the matter with you? What is it? Razumikin asked anxiously. My head spinning a bit, but that's not the point. It's that I'm feeling so glum, so very glum, just like a woman, I swear. Look, what's that? Look here, look. What is it? Don't you see? There's light in my room, don't you see? Through the crack? They were now standing in front of the last staircase next to the landlady's door, and in fact there was light coming from underneath the door to Raskolnikov's little room. That's odd. Perhaps it's Natasya, remarked Razumikin. She never comes to my room at this hour. She must have gone to bed some time ago. But it doesn't matter. Goodbye. What do you mean? I'll escort you. We'll go in together. I know we'll go in together, but I want to shake your hand here and say goodbye to you. Well, give me your hand. Goodbye. What's the matter with you, Rodya? Nothing. Let's go. You'll be a witness. They began climbing the stairs, and the idea flashed through Razumikin's mind that perhaps Zosimov was right. Hey, I've upset him with all my chatter, he muttered to himself. Suddenly, approaching the door, they heard voices inside the room. What's all this about? cried Razumikin. Raskolnikov, the first to reach the door, opened it wide. He stood on the threshold like someone rooted to the ground. 
His mother and sister were sitting on the sofa in his room and had been waiting for him for the last hour and a half. Why had he expected them least of all and thought about them least of all in spite of the news he'd heard that very day that they were leaving, traveling, and were soon to arrive? For the last hour and a half, they had vied with each other in interrogating Natasya, who was still standing before them and had, and had already managed to tell them, to tell them all, to tell them all there was to know. They were beside themselves with fear because they had heard that he had run away today, that he was ill, and as was apparent from the story, he was certainly delirious. My God, what's the matter with him? They were both weeping and had endured great suffering during this last hour and a half of waiting. Their joyful, ecstatic cry greeted Raskolnikov's appearance. They both rushed to him, but he stood there like a dead man. A sudden unbearable awareness struck him like a clap of thunder. He didn't even raise his arms to embrace them. He couldn't. His mother and sister took him in their embrace, kissed him, laughed, and wept. He took a step, stumbled, and collapsed onto the floor in a faint. Alarm cries of fear moans. Razumikin, standing on the threshold, rushed into the room. He grabbed the sick man in his powerful arms and lay him down immediately on the sofa. It's nothing, nothing at all, he cried to the mother and sister. It's only a faint. It doesn't mean anything. The doctor just said that he was much better, that he's completely well. Some water. There, now he's already coming too. Well, now he's come around. Grabbing Duneshka's hand in such a way that he almost tore it off, he forced her to see that he'd already come around. Both mother and sister regarded Razumikin with tender emotion and gratitude, as if he had been sent by Providence. So, thank you guys so much for joining me for the reading of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, the last two chapters of part two. You just heard chapters six and seven, and I really hope you enjoyed the reading. Thank you again for listening. I really do appreciate it. Until next time. <laughs>